All right, Dan. Well, first, want to just say thank you for uh, meeting up and sh- showing me into the uh, headquarters here in Madison. It's it's great to meet you and have you on. Welcome to the show. It's nice to have you. Well, in a minute, I'll take you up to the piano and uh, <laughs> show you that we have a, a really nice Steinway up on the fourth floor, and uh, you'll love that as a concert piano. But uh, but it's nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. I uh, look forward to seeing that. Um, I would love to start by learning your background of the kind of the meandering journey that I'm sure has brought you to this point today. I know at, at one point in your life, we're going to talk a lot about beliefs. Um, you were an active preacher uh, or you were involved in that world. Talk the listeners through your thought process at that point in your life, how you got to a point where you were you were a believer. If It's, it's probably difficult now to believe, to remember what that period of your life may have been like, but describe that. What what was what were the circumstances that led you to that point in your life? Yeah, so it's been longer since then now. Yeah. Because I preached up until I was about 35. So it's been a little bit longer than that now. So it seems like ancient history. Yeah. But I do recall, and, and a big part of it was being raised in the faith. My mom and dad met in the worldly dance bands of the 1940s. And... Uh, <laughs> Then when they got married and started raising a family, they threw away all their Glenn Miller records. They just got rid of all their worldly stuff, and they really dug into the fundamentalist Bible-believing church. And that's the environment I was raised in, every Sunday going to church. And they were sincere believers. They were good people, a fun family. I was raised fundamentalist, but I don't have any like negative memories. A lot of people do, yeah. you know, but... Uh, uh, I remember being afraid of hell. I mean, that kind of stuff. But in my family, we had a great family. Uh, and we went to church twice on Sunday. We went to Wednesday night Bible studies for years and years and years. In fact, even today, on Wednesday night, I'm thinking, what should I be doing tonight? You know what I mean? <laughs> that, and, I, and Jews will tell you the same thing with their heritage. You know, they're used to a certain rhythm of life. And so... Um, so it was it, it it was great. I loved it. I went to church, and, and my mom and dad were good people, and the, my friends and the ministers. I couldn't think of any negative experiences, and they were all telling me this is true, and I believed it was true. Unlike some people who you know raise their eyebrows when they're seven, going, "Huh?" I wasn't one of those people. Annie Laurie's father, uh, your wife, yeah, my wife Annie Laurie, her father um, Paul Gaylor, when he was like nine or ten, he was sitting in church in Southern Missouri. And he looked around, and it dawned on him. He said, my parents are nuts. <laughs> and as a little kid, he knew it was nutty. I mean, he just knew. And some people do, but not me. Hmm. When I was raised in it, I thought, I'm so special. I was born into the right family, in the right faith, in the right denomination, in the right time of history, in the right country. Hmm. I mean, it was just this feeling of being so blessed. And, and Jesus is coming soon, and I get to be... You know, when I was a teenager, I started preaching, and I thought that was like a call to the ministry, um, and I, I really believed it. I really thought God was calling me, and the Holy Spirit was was touching my heart. And I I could be a a soldier in the front line of God's army, out winning souls, and and uh, it, it was just it was intoxicating. It was wonderful, and I I got goosebumps, and I prayed, and I got tears in my eyes, and. And I loved Jesus and the Lord and the, through the Holy Spirit, all of that. And I worshiped and raised my hands. And uh, for a while, I spoke in tongues and did all of those Pentecostal or charismatic types of things. And uh, I really thought that 
the world was going to end any moment now, like a thief in the night, the Bible says. <clears throat> and, um, and so I would sometimes pray, Dear God, can you delay your coming just one more day so I can bring more, be save more people from hell? That's the kind of person I was. And in, in the foreword to my book, Godless, where I tell my story, Richard Dawkins wrote the foreword. He said, Dan Barker wasn't just a preacher. He was the kind of preacher you would not want to sit next to on a bus. <laughs> and I was that guy. I really was that on campus with my Bible. And I would walk up to you and look in your eyes. And, and, and I was certain that when you saw the love of Christ through my eyes, that you would want this wonderful thing that I have, that you as a lowly, depraved sinner are lacking in you know, you're a ship without a rudder, you know, you don't have an operating manual for your life. But here, I could come along and give that to you. I thought I was doing you a favor. I suppose I, suppose I was coming across kind of obnoxious to people, but I didn't care. The Bible even said, you know, you can be persecuted, but you've got the truth. So I was that kind of person, truly loved it and truly believed it. And uh, I was 15 when I accepted what I was convinced was a call to the ministry and started preaching. I started preaching at 15, and I didn't think, well, that God required you to have a, a piece of paper with an ordination on it. If you're called to preach, you preach. Mm. And I did. And then um, I went to uh, a Christian college, a uh, liberal arts college. It really was more like a Christian Bible college, Azusa Pacific, and got a degree in religion from there and learned some stuff. You know, I learned you know, preaching and and Bible interpretation and uh, Hebrew poetic literature and the Book of Rome, you know, that kind of stuff. And then uh, and then I was, I was an assistant pastor in three different churches. Um, and uh, I was a Christian songwriter. And I was a Christian record producer also, kind of on the side for a number of people. Some of those records are still selling. And some of the songs that I wrote back then... Uh, like in the 70s, I'm still getting royalties today from some of that music, which is weird. It's kind of neat. I mean, to think that there's, it's still selling, you know, even though I'm embarrassed by the lyrics, it was, you know. Uh, and I was a cross-country evangelist for about eight years, you know, from church to church. And we were kind of poor. I didn't charge for it. I, I just thought God's going to bless us. And sometimes they would take a love offering and, you know, and we'd go out in the car and count the money in the envelope, do we have enough cash to get to the next town? It's that kind of thing. It wasn't, we weren't in it for the, and I say we, my wife, uh, Carol, was uh, singing with me too. We weren't in it for the fame or the money. We really cared about winning souls. So um, uh, some people say, well, Dan, you weren't really a true believer because if you really knew Jesus, you would never have left him. And I'm thinking, well, how, how can you say that? I believed it. I trusted it. I read the Bible. I prayed. I felt it. Uh, the Bible says you shall know them by their fruits, not by what they say. And my life had all the fruits of the Spirit, according to the Bible. People were getting saved, and, you know, uh, ministry was expanding. And if I was not, if I was not a true Christian, then nobody is. Hmm. Because you, we could say the same thing about anyone else. Any, somebody asking me that question, I could ask them that question, and they, you know. So uh, that's kind of a quick uh, story about yeah about me, where I was, and what I believed. I was truly sincere. 
the beliefs that you held at that time, roughly speaking, I mean, maybe the, the, the primary beliefs that led you to all of the activity in relation to your Christian faith, what were those? What, what specifically were the beliefs that day-to-day you were carrying around in your head? So um, I think most Christians who consider themselves devout, true believers of the Bible uh, might pick different answers for that, right? And I don't think very many devout Christians really know that much about the Bible. They know some things, and they have their pastors who tell them things. But in my case, it was a Bible-believing. The Bible is literally the Word of God, Hmm. as far as it can go. Of course, there's metaphor in the Bible. It's not like we believed every word was literally true. When Jesus said he was the door, of course, he didn't have a doorknob and hinges. I mean, we knew, we knew, we knew even the most extreme literalist fundamentalist knows there's metaphor in the Bible. But the question is, where do you draw the line? And so I drew the line as high as I possibly could. And that's what a fundamentalist is, basically, or you might say, or even some evangelicals. That line of literalism is as high as you can possibly allow it to be. There is a God, there is a Jesus, there is a Holy Spirit. And God created us, and the world, uh, you know, I didn't take a position on evolution or the age of the earth. I just thought, well, I don't know, 10,000 years or something. <laughs> because I wasn't in it for the science or philosophy. I was in it for the soul winning. <laughs> I believe the Bible is literally true. And I think that's the crux of it, was the Bible. And then, of course, I believed that Jesus had, that I believed that we were depraved, that we were all sinners, that we all were incapable of really any truth or thinking, and that the only way to achieve salvation and get free, not only free from your sinful nature, but also the reward of eternal life, was by accepting the death of Jesus on the cross to pay for our sins, to pay the, uh, to satisfy the wrath of his angry angry father, basically, and by accepting him, becoming a born again Christian, then your sins are washed away, washed in the blood of the Lamb, as the hymn says, <clears throat> and then you have because of his resurrection, which at the time I believe the Bible very heartily endorsed the full bodily resurrection of Jesus, that gave us the promise of then surviving death, that we could live on forever in heaven, whatever that means. And I think most Christians have a different fuzzy idea about what heaven means. And I would have said at the time, well, we're incapable of knowing what it means because we're just these lowly mammals. And that when we get there, we're going to be really surprised how glorious heaven is, you know. <laughs> Even though in, in the book of Revelation, John of Patmos described it as a city with certain dimensions and walls made out of jasper and such. Uh, I didn't worry about those things. I, I, I had the attitude that I'm just not smart enough. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not God. I can't think it through. I'm just going to have faith and trust that his Bible is true, and I'm going to obey whatever he tells me. And, and obedience was the big thing. It was just to follow. And that was my ministry in the churches. That was my ministry as an evangelist and as a missionary. I spent two years in Mexico hmm. uh, preaching as well. And... Um, I learned how to speak really good Mexican Spanish from the church point of view. I still don't know a lot of cuss words in Mexico. I don't. <laughs> if I had been if I'd been down there for a different reason, um, but I, I can tell you all sorts of I can quote all sorts of Bible verses in Spanish. But I I probably couldn't um, talk much about science or mm-hmm. philosophy, you know, because that's that wasn't our thing. Mm-hmm. So um, those were my beliefs, and in 
if you drill deeper, there are specific beliefs. Adam and Eve, I thought, were literal people. It wasn't a metaphor. Um, and uh, there was actually a talking snake in the Bible. It wasn't just some figurative thing. It really was... Well, of course, the Bible doesn't actually call it a snake. New Testament writers called it a serpent, but the Bible itself in Genesis, it's just this animal they called Nachash, whatever that meant. And it could have been a snake. It didn't have legs, right? So um, I thought it was a literal talking animal and that uh, that there was a disembodied hand that flowed in, in the air and wrote on the wall and that the sun actually stood still in the sky. All those things I actually believed were actual historical reports of real things. Hmm. In hearing you make that description of your time in that world, is it fair to say that it really was your beliefs were guiding your behavior? I mean, you, you were a sincere believer and your actions in the world reflected the beliefs that you held at the time. Well, yes and no. And in, I think in our day-to-day -day lives, most people are pretty much the same. Yeah. You got to pay the rent. You got to change the diapers. You got to mow the lawn. You got to buy groceries. I mean, in your day to day life, you're pretty much living roughly. Mm. The difference is how much time do you spend in church or how much time do you spend reading the Bible or preaching or talking to others. So, the difference that it made in my life was that I did spend the time doing those things. I was actually out uh, knocking on doors and I was traveling and I was preaching in a so, yes, those beliefs informed my life, and I didn't think all Christians had to be the same. We were all different parts of the same body, and some of the mouthpieces, some of them are the preachers, and others have different roles, and I thought my role was called to be an evangelist, to speak out. And so I developed those skills, speaking, public speaking, preaching, um, and music playing the piano, writing songs, and doing music. And a lot of my ministry was a combination of that. So yeah, my beliefs informed my ministry. Yeah. Uh, not, I don't think all Christians would have been called to be ministers, and so how would their beliefs inf inform their lives? I suppose going to church is one of them. Uh, spending time in prayer would be another. Um, giving money, you know, con contributing to your church or to a religious organization would be other ways that you live out your life, you live out your beliefs. Yeah. And you indicated that you had been touched, right? That you felt a sincere feeling in your in your heart for, for Christ and that you, as you articulated, were a, a traveling preacher, someone who was very public about your beliefs in the Christian Bible and the Christian faith. You were married. You had a whole life that sounds like it was uh, centered on this construct. What began to happen? What was the first domino that fell, if you can remember it, that began to hammer away at your certainty? <clears throat> yeah, you're right. It, it was my whole life. I mean, I remember there were months when I didn't have a night off. It was always preaching, going somewhere and wanting to. I was probably in college with my Bible professors, I was probably much more an a of an active Christian than they were. They, they were more like scholars, right? Yeah. I was out in the street. I was out in the churches. I was out standing on park bunches and stuff. Um, so, as I describe in the book, Godless, the transition for me was, was gradual. It took four or five years. I've heard stories 
of other people who were raised religious who just snapped yeah. in within a day or something like, oh my gosh, how could I have been so stupid? That There's no way that would have happened with me. I wouldn't wake up one day and just hit myself on the head and go, oh, Dan, you're so dumb, you believe all. It, I had to go through this process. I didn't know I had to go through a process, but, I, but, but that's what I ended up doing. I wanted to be sure. So um, it's hard to find a point. It, it'd be kind of like asking you, Dan, um, when did you grow up? You, you're growing up now. I, I assume you think you're growing up. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a time when you were not. So there, you could probably point to a kind of a fuzzy time in your life uh, not necessarily the day you turned 18 and became yep. a legal adult, but I, you know what I mean? When did you grow up? That's kind of a hard question to answer. You can kind of point to a lot of things. So with me, it was um, the Bible, primarily the Bible, because it was all based on the Scripture. And if the Scripture fell, if Christ hadn't been risen, if the resurrection stories were not fall, were not true, then the whole thing was false. So I remember in my cross-country ministry, sometime around maybe late 70s, 78, 79 maybe, uh, this pastor, I was invited to a church to preach and do the piano. Uh, Baptist, American Baptist Church, by the way. And uh, this pastor, you know, we would often meet in the pastor's office or in a prayer room before the meeting. We would pray and maybe even hold hands or, you know, grab shoulders and pray. Dear God, like kind of like a football huddle, you yeah. know. Dear God, bless this meeting tonight and may your Holy Spirit change life, that kind of thing. So I was in the office with this pastor and we had done that. And it was a few minutes till I was going to go out onto the, onto the platform. And he said, we've got an interesting congregation in our church. We actually have some people in our church who don't think Adam and Eve were real people. And I was shocked. I kind of, kind of stepped back and said, and I said "What?" Um, and he said, "Don't get me wrong. I, I believe Adam and Eve were literal people, but these people in my congregation were trying to tell me that the Jews never even intended it to be taken literally. And from what we know about the evolution of the human race, there could not have been a first man and a first woman." And that even if there were, it wouldn't have come out of the Garden of Eden. It would have come out of Africa. And so these people were telling this pastor that one reason that they were interpreting the Bible more metaphorically rather than literal. And I remember being shocked. And I was thinking, how can you let them be members of your church then? If, if they have these heretical, I mean, you, they're calling God a liar. you know. And, I, and he told me this. And I thought about that. And... Um, I remember thinking, that kind of got me thinking, I didn't jump to become an atheist right then, but I was thinking, well, but these are good people, and they have a different opinion from me about a theological point or an interpretation point, and should I let that difference of opinion interfere with our fellowship as Christians, the fact that we don't agree on every single thing? Do we have to be? Because I was the kind of Christian who was extremist, you know, even Jesus in the Bible said, you should be cold or you should be hot, because if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And I thought there was no middle ground. Yeah. There couldn't be, on, especially on moral questions. There can't, something can't be half morally true, you know, or half true in the Bible. And so, you know, most fundamentalists of any religion have what I would call binary brains. It's either on or off, yes or no, right or wrong, uh, black or white, and like Jesus said, cold or hot, has to be one of those. You can't be in the middle. 
And here I was starting to bump into people because I was getting invited to churches because of my music. I had music published. And so they would invite me in. They had performed some of my songs, so they invited me into the church to preach, really, but more like to let's meet the conduct, let's meet the composer, you know, of this Christian stuff. And so not every church that I was invited to was as, as extremely fundamentalist as I was. Mm. I was invited to more moderate types of Christian churches. And so I remember thinking that these people who don't think in Adam and Eve were literal, they're wrong. This is, this is really actually wrong, the beliefs they have. But I can let that slide. I can, I can still call them brother and sister in Christ without having to force them to have the exact same theology as me. So it was things like that in the early part of my transition that didn't lead me to atheism, but what it did was it nudged me a little more liberal, a little less from the binary brain into more of a toleration of diversity and differences of opinion. Not even tolerate. I didn't tolerate their truth claim, but I tolerated them as people. It's thinking, well, they're not bad people. And eventually, as I started moving across that spectrum within the faith, you know, I didn't, I didn't imagine that would jump out of the faith. I realized that there's no, there isn't one, just one Christianity. There's a whole bunch of different Christianities if you want to lay it out on a continuum uh, from where I was, way over on this side. And then there's all these, way over on the liberal side, there's all these people that, like the Bible says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Uh, I didn't even think they were true believers. But in the middle, there's this whole different continuum of different shades of Christian belief. And any Christian can probably step back and place themselves along that spectrum somewhere where they are. And when I started moving within the faith to becoming a little more sophisticated and less hard-nosed fundamentalist, I was thinking, oh, so I'm maturing in the faith a little bit. I don't have to be so uh, absolutistic about everything. In fact, God probably allows different parts of the body and different interpretations. So I started moving across that spectrum about other doctrines and other teachings. So your question was, what was the first thing? I would have to say it was something like that. It, was, it, was a, it wasn't a doubt, even. I didn't even doubt Adam and Eve. What it was was just a, uh, more of a tolerance, uh, more, I guess a slightly more liberal way of viewing the whole Christian picture. And that was the beginning. Yeah, what happened next? What was the next evolution of your, your thinking? What, what else affected you and influenced you? So um, I was preaching against evolution, for example, and I was also preaching against humanism. And I realized I don't really understand anything about, though they're just words, you know, that we came from monkeys or humans worship themselves, you know, basic platitudes that you hear mm. from the pulpit. But I didn't really know what, what it was. And somewhere in my early 30s, I got this hunger to actually just learn something. It wasn't to question the faith. It was just, I need to be more informed. I came out of a Bible college, and I have a degree in religion. What, what good is that? You know, it, you know, that'll help me preach in a church. And I started reading books and magazines outside the faith, in other words, science books and, and science magazines, and thinking this is going to strengthen me as a preacher because I'm going to know more. I'm going to know your enemy. You know, I'm going to know what what are these. And I remember reading um, some popular science on uh, evolution, going, oh, okay, so let's see what evolution says. 
Ah, okay, so that's what it, oh, so, oh, I realized that I didn't really know what evolution was even saying. I thought I did. I thought I had this idea of what evolution, even if I had been a Christian scientist, a scientist as a Christian, uh, I would have wanted to understand what it was. I had this totally wrong idea about what even evolution was or claimed to be. And as I learned it, what the science is actually teaching, uh, I was thinking, oh, so that's, that's what, oh, I guess I was wrong. I didn't understand. So that's what evolution is saying. So natural selection, oh, so, oh, I get it. Hey, that's actually kind of cool. Oh, so natural selection isn't what I thought. Oh, so the species, oh, I get it. And then I start kind of fell in love with just learning something about the real world. That didn't challenge my faith at all because there's a lot of believers that you might call theistic evolutionists who, who believe that evolution was one of the tools that God used to create the human race. Evolution doesn't mean God didn't create us. And I went through that phase where I started to realize, well, who am I to tell God how he could not have created the human species? Am I going to tell him he could not have done it this way through evolution? Evolution is, seems kind of amazing, and, and God's amazing, and God's hard to understand, and evolution is too. So I started embracing more of a moderate Christian view of life by reading more science, and I started reading some philosophy too. And I just found this huge hunger suddenly. I think because I had denied myself for those 10, 15 years, I was dieting on this one diet over here. And, and I, I think in medicine, there's this phrase of a hidden hunger. You, you're hungry, but you don't know you're hungry for something. And so philosophically, I started realizing, wow, there's things to learn. And my brain just started Wow, I want to read, I want to learn, I want to know. So that nudged me further across that spectrum. To I became more of a moderate type of Christian, still a Christian. And my sermons changed, and I was preaching less about hell, less about damnation, uh, less about the afterlife, and I started preaching more about love and uh, living this life, you know. My, my whole theology and sermon started to migrate, and I thought, oh, I'm growing up here, I guess. I'm not the young, smart kid that thought I knew everything. I'm now a more of a mature Christian now, not so fundamentalist type. Uh, and, of course, I met a lot of those ministers as I was traveling around and talked to a lot of them, and they were good people, and I liked them. And, and so that process of, of, you know, originally it was the Bible, questioning the Bible, not doubting, but questioning, and then combined with just embracing science and reading uh, pushed me even more. And then I started thinking, well, if, you know, if Adam and Eve really were just a metaphor, what's the problem with that? Jesus used metaphors when he told the, the parable, like the parable of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. Jesus told these parables. He didn't intend the listeners or the readers to think there actually was a literal prodigal son, a person. He was telling this story like like Aesop's fables. You don't you don't really think those are talking animals. So it, Jesus, the, the important thing about the parable is not the historicity or the factuality, if that's a word. It's the it's the message. It's the moral message of the parable that's important, whether it's true or not. And I thought, well, if Jesus can do that with the parables. 
And if Adam and Eve are a metaphor, like an ancient Israelite parable, which was didn't matter if they truly existed, but what mattered was the moral tale that was being told, well then what else in the Bible is just figurative? Maybe Yahweh, maybe God himself is just one of these big figures of speech, metaphor, you know, parable things. And we're not really intended to take it literally like there really is a being called God up there. This is a story that the Jews and the Christians have been telling and that it's good for us to believe because it's a good story and it's a good moral thing. And so I, so that pushed me even further more toward the liberal side, you know. That's, that's what you would hear from a liberal pulpit, that kind of talk, you know, where what matters is your daily walk, your daily life. And so my ministry migrated as my views were migrating. And I can't really pick any one point in there and say that's when it happened. I do remember, though, 1983, realizing that I had passed the point. I remember that. It's kind of like you saying, hey, I guess I'm grown up now. I don't remember when it happened, but I, I guess I'm grown up now. What do you know? Um, so, um, and that was quite an experience. And I did have what you might call, uh, I shouldn't use the word epiphany because it's not an epiphany, but a self-realization of who I was as a person on this planet as an biological animal in a natural environment and there is no spiritual world. I mean, that was pretty amazing when that moment it actually happened in a church down in Mexico uh, uh, in the summer of 83. Hmm. That's a hell of an evolution from where you were to where you ended up. And I'm curious if there, if that continued where, you know, you went from, uh, you know, what I know was a, a liberal, moderate Christian uh, still preaching, still a believer, but more, it sounds like more focused in real life in, in our actual lives in, in this life. And then over time drifted further and further away from the faith, um, and moved entirely out of the faith. What's that story? How did that come about over, over the, the months and years? So I don't know if drifted is the right word. I think I deliberately sailed I mean, because I was, <laughs> I was through the whole process, even way, way, way back to my teen years, what I really wanted was to know the truth and then to speak what is true. That's, that's the motivation that drove me into the pulpit. I wanted to know the truth and speak the truth and not be afraid to say what's true. And that never changed. The motivation that drove me into the pulpit is the same motivation that drove me out. So it wasn't like, oh, I lost something. Is you know, it's like, oh, I drifted away, or I didn't, I didn't lose faith. I, I, I basically the title of my first book was "Losing Faith in Faith." Mm. It, it, I didn't lose the faith. I jettisoned it. I got rid of it eventually, and that happened uh, sometime before 1983. Um, where I realized, well, if God is just a big figure of speech and he's not actually a real person, what does that make me? Do I really think that? And does, and does it even matter if people believe or not? Does it, you know? <clears throat> and if, if that's a metaphor, then what about heaven? Is heaven really this golden city with one big street and it's uh, 380 miles tall, like, like, as just like John of Patmos describes it? Is that, are we to take that literally? Hmm. Or are we to think that these writers are just writing you know, uh, some kind of allegorical. And so uh, I realized that, I, you know, I guess, what does that call me? I don't know. Is 
and then the word atheist, I thought, well, atheist means you don't believe in God. Does that mean I'm an atheist? Well, I don't care about labels. At the time, I didn't know any other atheists, and it was just me. It wasn't like I saw some atheist on TV giving this great speech that convinced me. I hadn't read any atheist books. You know, it wasn't like, it was just suddenly, just within my own self and my own thought, thinking, well, what does that mean? My theology has changed so much in the last four or five years. What does that actually mean? I don't think I actually believe that there's an actual God. The God concept maybe can be useful for community and for moral values and such and such. But, uh, And I realized then, I guess I am a, an, an atheist. Whoa. I didn't like that word. Because at the time, that was like this big evil word. Yeah. It was almost as bad as the word liberal, you know. Because <laughs> for conservative fundamentalists, liberals are these evil things. And an atheist, oh, is it? And uh, but I had to be honest with myself, and uh, I remember trying to pray and deciding I'm not going to pray anymore. I can't pray. What am I praying to? What is this? Do I? Am, I'm just praying to myself, I guess. Uh, and I would hear. I used to hear the voice of God, not not audibly, but you know what I mean. This the spiritual kind of thing. And it was weird. I I remember sometimes driving my car down the freeways in Los Angeles, and I was like by by instinct and by habit, talking to God and asking for God's direction. But another part of my brain over here was looking at myself like from a distance. It's almost like I became my own science experiment. <laughs> like, hey, look what your brain's doing, Dan. And I said, well, leave me alone. I'm, I'm talking to God. But are you really? Yeah, I am. But, but maybe you're just talking to yourself. Well, who are you? you know, I mean, is this kind of a thing going on in the brain, like a split kind of um, where, where you can get yourself out of yourself to look at your own thinking the way you might look at a Hindu or, or a Muslim or some other. Look, look at those crazy people with those beliefs they have. If, if you can turn that eyeball that's pointing away from you and turn it around and point it to your own brain, that's hard to do. Yeah, That was a tough thing to do. And uh, I remember this kind of struggle, which was scary and fun at the same time, maybe kind of like if you're doing something that's scary and fun, like mountain climbing or, or skydiving or, or something that's, you know what I mean? It's risky, but that's why you do it. Yeah. So I had that feeling in my brain, this is, I shouldn't be doing this. And, but, and this is scary because what if there is a hell? You know, that was Blaise Pascal's basic agnostic argument. Uh, and what if I'm wrong, you know, all this time? And, and think of all the time and energy I've spent on this and then how embarrassing. So all these things are playing back and forth. But I realized sometime in the summer of 83 that I was no longer a believer. And I should have stopped preaching right then. I should have just said, that's it. But I had a calendar with invitations. And at that time, I was no longer in a local church. I was pretty much in what you might call a self-employed called evangelist, working on the side as a Christian record producer. So... Um, I wasn't as beholden to a local congregation then where I, that I'd have to get up in the pulpit and speak to them and say, hey, I don't believe anymore. But I was being invited to speak as an evangelist and musician. So for four or five months, I kept, I kept preaching after I knew I didn't believe anymore. And that was horrible. That was like, um, well, it was hypocrisy. It was just, you know, but how do you, how do you, you know... It's not that I needed the income from it, because it wasn't a lot of income. I never charged. We just, I just took like love offerings and that. 
but it was kind of like, how do you just finally want, it's like if, if somebody knows their marriage is over, right? After all these years of being married to someone that you loved for years, and now, uh-oh, you both realize, you know, I mean, this happens in life. Well, what's the exact moment that you walk out the door? Maybe you delay for a while. Maybe you, you know what I mean? You ease out. And that's kind of what happened with me. I kind of took those four or five months of, and it was kind of good that I did that because I could watch myself, like a science experiment, standing in this pulpit, speaking to a crowd of people in a church, and hearing these words come out of my mouth, and watching their reactions, and people praising God and raising their hands. And, um, and after one of the services, some woman came up to me, and she said, Reverend Barker, I want you to know I truly felt the Spirit of God on your ministry tonight. And I'm thinking, you did? Uh, you know, because if she knew what I was thinking, that I didn't believe this anymore, and that I wished I wasn't up there anymore, that I wish I had the courage to just break it off. And it, it's good that those things happen because it kind of showed me that it's a big drama. This pastor's up in the pulpit, and it could, there would be no effect if there wasn't a bunch of people out in the pews, like an audience or whatever, and this, inner, this back and forth of both buying into the system. And so I'm sure this woman felt something. I'm sure that when she was sitting there, she was feeling something, but she was incorrect that I was being sincere with the Spirit of God. So th something was going on there, and something is going on in the whole religious dynamic. <clears throat> and watching it from a different point of view was very interesting. So it took me until December, and when I finally did my last, finally my last uh, sermon. That's a great transition point because many, many years later, you ended up co-founding the Clergy Project. And the for I want you to to speak to this, but the the whole initiative behind that organization is largely to provide a community support, other resources to individuals who are in a similar situation as you were for those months. Um, for people who are unfamiliar with the clergy project specifically and what it's trying to do, how do you how do you describe that? What was the intention behind the creation of the organization? Well, I wish there was something like that when I was leaving back in the mid '80s in 1983, because I was all alone. The only resources I had was books, finding books somewhere, you know, in catalogs or the library, and reading books. And I thought I was the only one, and who else knew what? Who could possibly know what I was going through? Um, especially after I sent out my letter to everybody saying, you know, in, December, in January after that. The Clergy Project um, is pretty, it's a pretty amazing story. And if, if you want the full detail of the history of it, clergyproject.org has a, a page where it tells the whole history. And it was basically three different things. I, since, the, since 85, when I started working for Freedom From Religion Foundation, you know, volunteering, I started full-time in 87. Uh, I had occasionally met some other former clergy. And in fact, in 1985 in Minneapolis, we had a panel of four former clergy uh, who had come out of the faith. And it, uh, that's the first I'd ever heard of that. And I think that might have been the first ever panel like that. Uh, and the one was more fundamentalist. One was out of a more of a social gospel kind of Baptist tradition. Um, and so I kept in touch with a number of them, and I'd collected some of their stories over the years. I mean, at a convention of ours, somebody would come up, I used to be a preacher. You did? So did I. So we'd compare notes. And, uh, 
And I, I'd always thought, you know, maybe we should start a group because there's others, you know, and there's got to be atheists in the pulpit like I was who have left the faith, but they haven't transitioned out yet. Yeah. Because how do you do that? And it's tough because if that's your livelihood, and if all you have is a degree in divinity and you're going to go out into the labor market, what are you going to, you know, what kind of job? And maybe it's at the time, especially your, your church is your employer and that's your health care. And me, in fact, I know a preacher who stayed in the ministry for like four or five years because his disabled wife needed the health care from the job of, of being the minister. It was, and he couldn't just walk away. It would have been, it would have been harmful to his family. So, uh, in, um, 10 or 11 or 12 years, oh, 2000, when was that, 2006? When did the God Delusion? It was 2006. 2006, 2007, yeah. So just before that came out, um, I met Richard Dawkins in Iceland. He heard my story, and he was impressed with it, and that's what allowed him to write the foreword to my book, because this was the first he'd ever heard of a minister who had left. And so uh, then we went to Copenhagen for this world atheism thing, and during dinner one night, Richard Dawkins says, you know, I bet you there's a lot of ministers in the pulpit who need help to get out, like you. And maybe we could help them. Maybe we could raise money or something. And we could, you know, I don't know what we, what we could do or call it. And uh, But wouldn't that be good? And it would be good PR to show the world that there are non-believers in the pulpit who want to get out. And right about the same time, the philosopher Daniel Dennett and his colleague Linda Lascola uh, did a project called Believers Who... Uh, ministers who don't believe or preachers who don't believe. I had I had been interviewed by Psychology Today like maybe the year before and they saw that interview. They, somebody interviewed me about my transition out. And so Linda and Dan were wanting to actually interview clergy who are in the pulpit who no longer believe but they're still preaching. How do you find those people? <laughs> what do you, how, how in the world would you find someone like that? Uh, and so Linda contacted me and said, do you know any of them? And I, and I said, well, I, yeah, I do actually know some, and I, I know a bunch who have left, too, you know, a bunch of former clergy. And so I was able to give Linda a handful of names, I don't know, six or eight, and she ended up interviewing, I think, two or three of those names. She did intensive interviews. She actually flew there and met and talked, and then they produced this article for, um, what was the magazine? Evolutionary Psychology, it was one of those magazines, psychology magazines, an article about preachers who don't believe. <clears throat> that article spurred a lot of interest, people contacting them, saying, hey, me too, but don't use my name. In fact, Linda had to use pseudonyms for some of these people. They, they couldn't let it be known that they were talking to an, an atheist about, you know, and they're still in the pulpit the next Sunday they're going to get up and preach. <clears throat> so that came out, and... Uh, so those three things kind of happened at once, and we all kind of knew each other. And, and so Richard and, and Dan Dennett and, and I, we thought, well, why don't we start a group? And that's how the Clergy Project started. And that wasn't the name at first. We didn't have a name. Hmm. <clears throat> but um, we, the decision to start the Clergy Project, which wasn't named that at the time, uh, happened at the, uh, the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. That's where I decided to go to lunch with them. Let's sit down and talk with Linda. And, and Richard Dawkins had his, um, Elizabeth Corn Cornwell, uh, his person. And so we all said at the end of that meeting, at the end of that lunch, yep, let's start a group. Let's see what we can do. Richard Dawkins Foundation 
graciously put up the money hmm. so we could start a web page. And one of the clergy who was still in the pulpit, his name was Adam Mann, that was his pseudonym, which is a great name, he kind of did the admin for us on that. And a couple of others, another one, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, what was his name? Charles, he was another pastor who's still in the pulpit. So the two of them and us were working to get this website up, and we launched in March of 2011, the Clergy Project. We, we came up with the name, the Clergy Project, and launched it. Uh, a, a, a resource or a, a landing page for ministers, religious professionals, that could be nuns or monks or rabbi. We, there are some rabbis in the group. Uh, people who truly are what you would call clergy. Uh, to come together to to share ideas, to share resources. Many of them have since written books. And if you go on the Clergy Project, you can see some of their resources in the books. And some of them write their stories there. Some of them are very moving. One of them was thrown out on the street and, the, and uh, lost the car in the house. And I mean, some really sad stories about the way they were treated by these loving Christians who found out that they had changed their views. So uh, you can read about that in more detail uh, on the Clergy Project's history page about how that happened. We started with 50, 52, was it? We call it the founding 50, which is pretty amazing. About three-fourths of them were like me, former clergy, but mm. about a fourth of them were still in the pulpit mm. using pseudonyms. And a lot of them have since left, which is kind of neat to watch their story. And today, the group is almost, it's more than 1,000 now. It's over, it's, I think it's about 1,100 today uh, in, in 2021. And it's still roughly the same. About a fourth of them are still in the ministry wanting to get out. And the challenges they face are, are many. The, the main one, of course, is, is a job. How do you support? How, you know, what are you going to do with your life? Some of them had to flip hamburgers for a year or two. You know, some of them had to go into some other. Some of them found a good transition going from the ministry into nonprofit work because that looked good. Mm. They weren't just leaving the faith to go out and sin, you know what I mean, uh, to go out and be a bad person. They were actually working for a nonprofit, and, and so that gave them a way to ease out. Some, some have gone into teaching philosophy. Delos McCown was one of those. Uh, Patrick McGuire was another one, became a philosophy teacher. Which, that's a pretty good fit. Some of them went into selling insurance, which is another kind of good fit. Uh, some started home businesses. They'll all tell you different stories, and we have raised money for hardship grants occasionally, like if they are kicked out in the street and they're going to lose their car. So we, we'll pass the hat among ourselves, basically. Mm -hmm. It's not like a group that you could join. Nobody could join. You could donate, of course, but at that time we didn't really take like donations. And so, um, but a lot of them also need uh, counseling. And so we have counseling referral. Sometimes it's uh, depression. Sometimes it's mental health. Uh, 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 marriage counseling is a big deal because what if one of them changes and one doesn't? The minister's wife or the minister's spouse can be just as much a part of the ministry. And if one of the team changes and becomes an atheist or agnostic, what does that do to their family? Some of the families have broken up. That's what happened with me. Some of them split up. Some of them have managed to hold us together. And uh, and they're all different. Um, I remember I got a Skype call from, I think it was Vietnam. Yeah, Vietnam. And uh, this guy, he said, I'm a missionary, but this is going to be my last mission. I'm an atheist now, but I got to talk quick because I can only talk to you when my wife is in the shower. Because if she came out and saw me <laughs> 
almost like if he was watching porn or something, you know, <laughs> if she, if she were to come in here and see, and see what I'm doing. And so we had to talk quick and say, but when I get back to the States, I, I'm going to need help because, you know, anyways, that kind of thing is it, kind of, it's, it's kind of sad, but exciting at the same time that there's these lives that are in this transition. So there's a lot more to say about the clergy project, but I think that gives you a taste of what's, um, what's happening. And for, you know, if there is an active member right now, right? I mean, this, these stories remind me of sort of coming out stories for people who are gay that yeah. they, they, they've often known it for a long time. And eventually after a long enough period of time and enough courage, they speak their truth. Um, if there is somebody listening to this who is an active member of the clergy and is in that situation where they're no longer a believer, what's the best thing they can do? What kind of resources are available to them? Well, so the clergy project exists for that very reason. And uh, you can go to clergyproject.org and there is uh, an application and it's all confidential. And in fact, we encourage you to use a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. But eventually, after the screening, we have a screening committee. Uh, our main screener for many years has been John Compeer. He's John Compeer is a fifth generation Southern Baptist preacher, if you can believe that, who became an atheist. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the true thing. And so um, one of the screeners will talk with you usually on the phone, or it can be a Skype thing if you want. And just to verify that you truly, truly were clergy, first of all. You weren't just, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a pew-sitter. Uh, not to disparage pew-sitters, but you know what I mean. That you really were a clergy. And then that you truly have abandoned your belief in the supernatural. Whatever you call yourself, agnostic, atheist, whatever. Uh, the labels don't matter that much. And our screeners are really good at telling, because John Compeer knows, if he's talking with a Southern Baptist minister, there are, there are things that they say and they know, and there's things that he would never say if he was, if he was you know, trying, if he's trying to sneak into the group. There, there's, there, you just know after a while, talking with them, that they are the genuine article in both regards. They really were preachers, and they really now are philosophically changing their minds. And then... Uh, and then you will be admitted into the group, which has a lot of forums. And you can join any of the forums. It could be like dealing with your marriage. It can be, uh, there, there's a, a music forum. Or were you a music minister? There's a theological forum. There's a, uh, employment. What do you do? You know, help, help with a job kind of forum. Uh, and there's places to share stories. And you, you, you will be able then to read stories of a lot of the others who've gone through the same thing as you. We also have it broken down by denomination. There's a there's there's a couple of imams in the group. Uh, there's a number of rabbis. There's a lot of liberals in the group, but then and there's also a lot of fundamentalist Pentecostal types. So you're probably going to want to find the the people in that group that relate to your denomination and talk with them about that, because they'll they're going to understand where you're at more. But you'll find them in there. There's enough people now in the group that can. Either just, and sometimes it's just knowing, it's just talking with somebody. Hey, I'm not alone. Others yeah. have gone through this. And uh, resources. We also have um, uh, job transition money where if you need help getting out of the ministry, getting into another job, we, we have experts that can help you with that. And there's even a program you can sign up for that go through this counseling on job transition. So, uh, and the... That was originally started by the Todd Stiefel Foundation. Yeah. He, he gave money to seed that, and so we're raising more money from that. 
So if if that's a big question, and that usually is a big question, what am I going to do? How am I going to provide for my family? Um, or if it's if it's marriage counseling or whatever, or mental health, or uh, sometimes it's just theological questions. Well, what about the meaning of life? Or uh, what about morality without God? Or or what about the inspiration of the inerrant Word of God? Things like that. Just questions that any that any of us might have at the time. Uh, or what book did you read? What book can you recommend on that? So really, it's kind of fun. And uh, it's kind of nice having a group that nobody can join. We're not looking for like a membership organization. It's more like a service organization. It's more like, a, you know, when you're helping people who need help. So, um, And if you're worried about filling out the application, there's also a Clergy Project Facebook page where anybody can jump onto that. And members of the Clergy Project voluntarily will join in on that if they want to, if they want to be involved. And some of them will use pseudonyms. And you might be able to interact without actually joining to maybe test the waters about what that's like. So uh, so it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I have to imagine, given your own background, that you have a lot of empathy for these people. I mean, you alluded to this earlier, that those three or four months where you were preaching and not believing were brutal. And you felt like a hypocrite while you were doing that time. You you also very quickly alluded to your resignation letter, uh, I think in the year 1983, that you published and released where I assume you indicated what your actual views were at that time. I'm curious about you as the human going through a transitionary period like that where you're married. You know if you say the truth about your beliefs, it's going to have serious consequences and serious change will be brought to your life. What was that like for you? And what was that re the resignation letter that you are that you wrote and and submitted? Tell me that story. How did that go? So after I gave my last preaching performance, uh, and I tell that story in my book Godless. It was it's kind of dramatic, actually. I realized no, I can't do this anymore. It was it was like the Christmas Christmas week up in uh, Central California. And I decided I can't anymore. And so in early January, I wrote a letter to everybody, um, all my friends, all my relatives, all the Christian publishers. I was working with a number of Christian publishers. I was working with Gospel Light Publication on Sunday School Songs and VBS, Vacation Bible School Songs, uh, Mana Records, and I had done some work with Word Music as well. Uh, co-ministers, co-missionaries, anybody that I could think of in this network of, you know, Christian life, uh, especially relatives. Uh, I wrote a one-page letter. I wanted to keep it really succinct. And I reproduced the letter in my book, Godless, basically saying um, that I've come to a conclusion I don't believe anymore. Maybe I'm an atheist, maybe I'm an agnostic. Um, Today I would say both, but yeah. at the time I was still thinking that through. <clears throat> and uh, I would love to keep open the dialogue and uh, and that I haven't I haven't rejected any of you as as friends or anything. And I sent I made about fifty copies maybe back you know, back in the days when you had to mimeograph each copy. Or I don't know how I made the copies, but uh, um and mail and I remember the day that I went to the mailbox there by Chafee High School. Um, and I just about ready to let go of those envelopes thinking, this is kind of a big deal. You know, I'm telling everybody right now. There was no email, of course. We yeah. couldn't just send out a, you know, copy to everybody. 
Um, and I think it's better that they got an actual letter. Um, and so when I let go of that, okay, this is it. That's the break. I can't, I can't jump back in that mailbox and get those out of there. <clears throat> and then I was wondering about the responses. But the alternative was to live a lie. And I think even a believing pastor, a believing Christian, would prefer that you not live the lie, prefer that you come out and admit that you don't believe anymore, than to stay in the pulpit and pretend. I think staying and pretending is the worst thing. And for me, the integrity that was involved, the integrity is more important than I'm going to do this. I didn't have the lure of, of a lot of money because I wasn't making a lot of money. I was doing it for God, you know, and ma I made a living. Some of that was through Christian uh, record production, which was a, a, a pretty good side job, uh, which helped pay the rent and stuff. Um, so, yeah, and I knew there would be consequences. There have to be consequences. When you were talking about a gay person, telling their family, what's, what's, gonna, what's grandma and grandpa going to say? What's, what's going to happen to my uh, inheritance? What's going to happen to my college tuition? What's going to happen in my life if my parents are no longer on my side? You know, So, and my parents actually received the letter from me as well, and they were proud of their minister son who was a Christian songwriter. And, and I wondered, and my mom, they were living out in, outside of Phoenix. She got on a bus came over to California, and we stayed up late in the night talking. And I don't remember too much. I remember it was pretty intense. I remember we talked about the Bible. And I remember saying things to Mom like, Mom, you're a Sunday school teacher teaching these precious little kids, and look at this verse, and look at that verse, and look at what this God said. And do you want to, do you want to really tell those things to these kids? Do you, and uh, I didn't realize, yeah, she went back home, I didn't realize the, the impact that it had on her. Because we were a good family. We loved each other. We, luckily, our family was very functional. Can you say non-dysfunctional? Um, <laughs> but we are a very um, caring and loving family. And later I heard mom said, you know, Danny, Danny's Danny, and we know him, and we love him, and he kind of made sense. And, and she actually stopped going to church. My dad kept going to church. And my dad started sending me letters, these long handwritten letters. And... Um, He's he really sweet, you know, but very strong, challenging my, and I re, I wrote back to him. And after a while, it, I don't know if it became a stalemate or what, but uh, mom one day said, you know what, Danny's right. She stopped going to church. She stopped teaching Sunday school. He's right. I never thought about this before like this. No one's ever told me. And then it took my dad another year or two, and then they both became atheists which uh, I had never imagined. You know, I wasn't like trying to preach to my parents. Like I didn't want to be an, an obnoxious atheist trying to interfere with their freedom to believe, but they just on their own. And then one of my brothers too, Daryl, um, uh, is a great guy. Um, Daryl <laughs> says that his whole attitude to Christianity was not the same as mine. His whole attitude was like, like, how much sin can I commit and still get into heaven? You know, he was, he was like working the angles. How, you know, and he, he, he was kind of what even he would have said. He was kind of a lousy Christian, you know. And his big brother, the minister, evangelist, Christian songwriter, I was this like shining beacon of what a Christian should be. And then when I came out as an atheist, Daryl went, whoa. And he said, yeah, you know, I've thought a lot of those things too, but 
I never said him out loud. And it was almost like he wanted permission. He wanted somebody else that he admired and respected to give him permission to say those things that he said. So very quickly, he became a humanist and an atheist. And he took a lawsuit challenging religion in the public property. And, and he was, up until recently, he was the chapter director for one of our chapters in Washington mm. State. So, you know, for decades now, he's been a strong atheist. Our other brother of the three of us is still a born-again um, Tom. Really, really a great guy. And we all love each other. And Tom and I talk a lot. To Tom's credit, even though he's a born-again evangelical church-going, believing, conservative Christian, he hates Donald Trump. Hmm. He's one of the he's one of the 20% of evangelicals who did not vote for Trump. One of the 20% of today's evangelicals who thinks character actually matters, which is what I used to preach, that character mattered. You know, you live your Christian life and uh, we should really support godly people. But uh, so uh, poor Tom... His mom and dad and his two brothers became atheists, and so and he stayed in the faith that we, we were all raised in. So we jokingly call him the white sheep of the family. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's the one who stayed in. And it doesn't matter. When we talk, we pretty much talk about family things. And, you know, it's um, you have such precious time anyway in your family. Why talk about things that you're fighting about? Why, why talk about divisive stuff? Why not just be a family and... And let each other think. And people should be judged by their actions anyway. And he's yeah. a good guy and his actions are good. So why do I care if he believes in the resurrection or in Mother Goose or whatever? I mean, that's his that's his private faith. So We've got about 10 minutes left. And in that time, I would love to, to talk to you about this organization and religion in modern America, right? This, as you mentioned, this is a free country. People are welcome to believe whatever they would like, uh, provided they're doing it lawfully and and um without harming others you don't strike me as someone who is a bitter former christian right i mean you seem to have very good memories of your time in in religion and had a uh seemingly a, a overall positive experience in your upbringing uh, in, in relation to christianity um you just said that, you know, even in your own family, it's not always, you have to pick your battles. You know, it's not always worth bringing up disagreements, that there often is far more that people agree on than disagree on and to focus on on those things with people who love each other. What is your, your friends with Richard Dawkins? You wrote the foreword to your, to your book and he is known as a very in-your-face you know, atheist figure who uh, believes in publicly challenging people. I've seen, seen him do it myself personally. Um, what is your view now on the role of religion in, in America in, in 2021? And, and maybe more specifically, what's the role of the Freedom From Religion Foundation in its principles? What's it try, what is it trying to accomplish or uphold in America generally? So I'm also like Dawkins. I do public debates. I've done 137 formal public moderated debates uh, since 1985. And I'm, I'm not afraid to... Um, should, I, should I wait for this? Uh, it's all good. You hear the siren going by? Um, so I'm not afraid to confront uh, on the issues, philosophical issues. I think... Most believers, most Christians and Jews and Muslims, I think that most of them are good people in their daily lives. And 
I don't set up debates, but people invite me to debates. And so I've done those 137 formal debates uh, to defend the views of non-believers and to confront those who have irrational and even dangerous views. So being irrational is one thing, but being dangerous is another. So if a person wants to believe in Jesus, fine. But if they want to withhold medical care to their children because they think God's going to heal their children, well, that's, that's dangerous. They want to treat women if they want to deny rights to gays, if they want to take action, in, if they want to turn their faith into action that harms other people. Well, then, at least I, I think most people who call themselves moral feel an obligation to speak out against that. Not against their freedom to believe what they want or to love Jesus, but against the actions in the world. So you see it with women's rights and you see it with other issues. So the Freedom from Religion Foundation is not opposed to freedom of speech or freedom of assembly or freedom of religion. We're not barging into churches. We're not, you know, unless, unless I'm invited, I'm not going into the churches and trying to drag people out of the pews. You stupid person. This is a free country, right? <laughs> because... They have the freedom to believe, and if they don't, then I don't have the freedom not to believe. It's a free country. But there's a difference between free speech and government speech. We're not attacking the believers. What we're doing, we are attacking government bodies or government officials who are violating their oath of office by using their secular office to promote their private religion. Because their secular office is mine, we the people. So the government is supposed to be secular and neutral. And when we take lawsuits, we are suing a government actor at some level for violating the Constitution in order to protect all of us, believers and non-believers alike, from governmental interference in our, in our lives. So uh, we're very uh, proud of being aggressive in that sense. We're, we don't necessarily see we're going after religion, but we're going after those religionists who are abusing their office to do what we would call un-American things, thinking that this is an American nation or that there's a preferred religion. So actually, in, in the past, we have been thanked by believers. And sometimes we're even joined by believers. And Christian, even some conservative Christians will join us in a lawsuit because they don't think the government should be pushing anyone's religion either. Because if they're pushing my religion this week, whose religion are they pushing next week? Mm. So our goal is to keep state and church separate so that people are free to believe even more if they want to, or even less if they want to. The founder of FFRF, Anne Nicol Gaylor, the principal founder, she and her daughter, Annie Laurie, who, whom I married, um, founded in the 70s. Anne, Anne Nicol Gaylor said that you can't have... the you can't have the freedom to believe if you don't also have the freedom to dissent. You have to have both in this country. So there's a tradition, a proud tradition of dissent, not just on religion, but on all sorts of things. And, you know, we, we, we champion people who dissent even politically or, or whatever. <clears throat> so we view ourselves as the proud dissenters uh, of Christian nationalism or religious nationalism. And, um, and, and you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think Richard Dawkins is a strident, in-your-face atheist. If you, if you read his book, The God Delusion, I think there's maybe just one sentence in there that you might call strident, and that's the first sentence in chapter 2, hmm. where he said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. And then he lists these uh, 
is it 19 characteristics, you know, jealous and bully and all that. <clears throat> in fact, he asked me to write a book documenting all that. So I have a book called God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction <laughs> that proves that he's right. <clears throat> so that one sentence, you might call that strident, but compared to what the Bible says, if you look at the Bible, that is strident. If you look at the Bible's curses and threats and the hell and all that, if you, if you want to accuse somebody of being strident, then look at the Bible and look at these preachers. So most of Richard Dawkins' writings and speakings are, are pretty gentle and calm and reasoned, but we know what happens in, in a debate a lot is mm. called projection. Somebody in the audience is hearing him say something that they don't like. It makes them angry. So they project their anger back on him and say, why are you so angry? When actually he's just trying to be doing a reasoned debate here. So um, there's times when Richard and when and I and Dan Dennett and others might be a little extreme in our choice of words occasionally. I mean, that happens in, in all dialogue. I mean, in, and I guess maybe I should apologize occasionally if that happens. That's very rare. I think you can't force somebody to agree with you. you the only way to attract people is to be attractive. The only way you can is to say something reasonable and sensible that taps into what they want and need in their lives. So so is that in your face? I don't know. Uh, if it is, that's fine. Uh, it's, it's for a good cause. Hmm. As we wind down, I, I want to, you, you were talking about the fact that, and you seemed like this was astonishing to you, that your own parents over time came to agree with a lot of what you were saying. And, uh, you know, a lot of the evolution of your life, as you've articulated it, is an evolution of thinking and a growth in thinking. Um, you said this earlier that, you know, your North Star was wanting to speak truth, that that was something that hadn't changed, that that was kind of your guiding light in, in your life. Yeah. Um, what did you find or what have you found to be the most persuasive uh, observations, uh, arguments, that you have made to people like your parents that you found in uh, stories from members of the clergy project that really did change their perspective on things and made them think and kind of uh, were potentially the, the first, you know, uh, opening to a, a perspective shift in, in people. So it depends on your theology. It depends on where you are. There is no one size fits all. Uh, there's no magic bullet to turn someone into an atheist, if that's what we even want to do. Yeah. Um, for me, it was primarily two things. It was the Bible and morality. So questioning the reliability of the Bible, for me, for the kind of Christian I was, was a, was a big thing. Because I took it seriously. And maybe that was my mistake. I took it too seriously. I read it and cared about it. Uh, the other one is just letting it be known that you can be good without God. Because I used to think you couldn't, the kind of Christian that I was. So if, if you don't have to be a preaching atheist, you don't have to come up with like some winner arguments, you know what I mean? But if you're living a good moral life that's helping others and that's generous and depending on your personality and your, your wants, and people see that and they know you're a non-believer, that goes a long way. You don't even have to say a word to them. Hmm. Your, your grandchildren or your nephews and nieces or your kids or your, you know, that, they see what kind of person you are and they see that your non-belief isn't tearing you apart. It's not losing any sleep. It's not causing you to be a bad person. There are some rotten atheists in the world, just like there's rotten Christians. There's, I mean, there's always going to be some rotten groups, people in every group. 
So just for me, I would say the reliability of the Bible and morality, uh, living a life, uh, you could add to that meaning and purpose if you want to. And I have a whole book called um, Life Driven Purpose, mm. if you get the joke, mm-hmm. um, which you know claims that life as an, an atheist or an agnostic can be even more meaningful than life as a believer. So that's another one. If you were raised as a liberal, uh, some of the people in the clergy project say it was the problem of evil was a big thing for them. That all these things in the world that God could have helped and didn't, and uh, all the, you, you know, if if you had been there on nine eleven, and if you had had the power to stop it with no harm to yourself, if you could have done something like maybe given those people a heart attack, or who knows? If you if you had the power to do that, would you have? I would have. I would have stopped it. I would have thought, wait a minute, there's innocent people, there's kids here. And there's no threat to me. I'm going to stop them from doing that. Well, God apparently cares. God was apparently listening to the prayers of a lot of those people that day who had prayed for his protection and gone to church, who promised to protect them and to love them. And God had the power to stop that, but he didn't. So those are, for for some people, the problem of evil really is a strong argument to nudge them away from belief. Maybe not belief in God, but belief in a good God. Because maybe there is a God and he's a, he's a real pain in the butt God. I mean, maybe, I mean, you can't rule out the possibility, logically, of an evil God. And if you look at the Bible, that's kind of what you see. And he even says in the Bible, I, I have committed this evil, I have created evil. And many of his acts are actually attributed to evil acts of God. Job even said that, all the evil things that God did to me. So the problem of evil is another one, uh, which I think philosophically, I think most philosophers would say the problem of evil is probably the toughest nut for a believer to take, to swallow. I know you do a lot of these interviews, and you have shared a lot of information in the public in your life through your books, through Free Thought Thought Radio, through interviews like this. Last question I'd love to ask you is whether there's anything that you feel like um, you you feel like is worth clarifying, a position you have misinformation misinformation about your views or FFRF that uh, you you think it's important to correct, just basically opening up a, a final opportunity for you to articulate anything that you think is important for the public to know about either your work or your views that might help to actually accurately clarify what your position actually is. Yeah. Um, besides a lot of those things I mentioned before, but you can be good without God in that. Uh, I think a lot of believers really don't know or understand that for many of us non-believers, not all of us, but for many of us non-believers, our lack of belief, our stance as non-believers is just as important and just as precious and just as life-affirming and just as meaningful to us as an identity of who we are as human beings as their faith is to them. I think many believers view us as outsiders rebels we are the you know we are the the lower class in the in the country because we're not part of the upper class people who believe and i don't think they understand maybe they're even perplexed that why would we even go to the trouble you know why would our group even want to exist what are we just troublemakers do we just want to you know we get letters all the time when we print them in our paper about people who are just tell us to go go back to the country that you came from and i respond well 
I'm a member of a Native American tribe, so <laughs> what country should I go back to, you know? You go back to your country. Uh, what, what, should I go to Iran? That's, a, that's another, you know, there's other religious countries. So I think there's a misconception that atheists and agnostics are all these just sort of sad, disgruntled, you know, angry people who just don't want to go along with the really good part of our country. When we feel, and if you talk to Annie Laurie, my wife, uh, who's born and raised, she's like third generation non-believer, and a lot of our members who are, they're proud of the fact that they're non-believers, which means something as in, in a positive sense, as a rebel in a, in a society that's considering you an outcast. So for us, this is really proud and even fun and even meaningful, uh, just as much as they're going to church or giving money to Billy Graham or, or whatever means to them, our lack of belief is just maybe even more powerful because it's, it's saying something different. It's mm. saying something challenging. It's saying something uh, that affirms reason and affirms human values and the, and the value that we put on, uh, on, re on the real world rather than sacrificing it for some hoped-for, probably phony afterlife. So uh, I think that's a big misconception, and I wish there was a word for that. Mm. I wish there was a word to describe a person's attitude toward an outsider who they don't even view as even sitting at the same table with them. Mm. Now it's starting to change. Now with the Free Thought Caucus in the House of Representatives, uh, and now in many forums, uh, atheists and agnostics and non-believers are being invited not to control, but just to sit at the table, yeah. just to be, we're part of the fabric too. This is our country. We're proud of our country. We're proud of who we are as people. Dan, this has been a real pleasure. I, I, I'm fascinated by your story, and I know you're a busy guy, and um, I j just in closing want to express gratitude to you for the work that you do and um, and mostly today just for the time of, of sharing your story and, and talking to me it was uh, uh, it was a, a real a real pleasure for me personally so thank you it's sounding very close to gratitude <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed well we can be grateful for many things can we? we can well thanks it's been fun talking with you Dan likewise yeah.